Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show, where we save you time by providing you the too-long-didn't-read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube through video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Saturday, July 16th, 2022. This is your Threat Intel Briefing for the week of uh, July 10th, 2022 to July 16th, 2022. Thanks for joining me. If you're watching live on Saturday, if you are watching the replay, thanks for watching as well. If you're on YouTube, make sure to leave a like on this video and subscribe to the channel, hit the bell icon, do all that youtube kind of stuff. And then uh, if you're listening on a podcasting platform, remember we are available on all podcasting platforms. Make sure to uh, leave us a review and subscribe there as well. And uh, yeah, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the articles here. So the first article, and uh, actually too, before we just get started, uh, in the show notes, in the description, there will be a link to all of these articles in the show notes. So if you want to actually look at the articles and see, uh, see more information within the articles, make sure to do that as well. So, all right, let's go ahead and jump in here. So first article, uh, Pentagon will pay you if you can find a way to hack us. The U.S. Department of Defense has created a broad but strong, uh, short bug bounty program for reports of vulnerabilities in public-facing systems and applications. Uh, the hack U.S. program kicked off on Independence Day, so July 4th, and is scheduled to run through July 11th. So this actually ended uh, this uh, not too long ago, right? With rewards total uh, reflected by the severity of the flaws. Now the DoD, when they launched this program and they were running it, they allocated up to one hundred ten thousand dollars for the exploit hunt. Vulnerability spots could bring five hundred dollars or more for high severity flaws and critical holes worth at least a thousand dollars, but going as much as five thousand dollars set aside for particular rewards such as $3,000 for find, uh, best finding for the uh, army.mil domain. The initiative was ran by the bug, uh, bug bounty platform, HackerOne, which teamed up with the DoD, operated a 12-month pilot program that ended in April. So if you don't know what a uh, vulnerability uh, or bug bounty program is, basically it's a way of crowdsourcing finding vulnerabilities, right? So we have a bunch of researchers or People that are interested in cybersecurity, maybe they don't even work in cybersecurity. And uh, basically with these programs, you can sign up and there are certain restrictions and you can find vulnerabilities, report them to the companies or the you know, defense department or army or whatever. And then you'll get rewarded or paid for those, uh, those bounties. Now, with this particular kind of program where it's dealing with the government, especially like the U.S. government, there's more restrictions for sure. They have very specific things like I think you have to be a U.S. citizen and like some other stuff, right? Typical kind of stuff dealing with the government, right? But, um, you know, this isn't that new for the government to be doing this. They've had several different programs. They had like uh, a hack the Pentagon a few years ago, I think it was. There's like a hack the Air Force. There's all these different programs because you can get a lot of value out of this, right? Not just for the government. And a lot of companies actually offer these kind of programs too. So if you are looking to get into cybersecurity or you want to keep your skills really sharp, you know, these are a great program to kind of get involved with. Uh, Alternatively, if you are in a company and you're like running a program or you're running 
you know, fixing vulnerabilities and things like that, you know, this is a great way to kind of crowdsource that, especially if your budget is limited, right? Because you don't have to have this person on staff. And as far as the company is concerned, right? You could have researchers that spend hours and hours and hours on this stuff, right? And let's say normally maybe you charge like uh, maybe an employee's like $150 an hour, or $200 an hour, right? Well, that adds up eventually, right? So it's kind of a way to get cheap labor, if you will. But, um, you know, really, uh, really, uh, really, really cool, um, you know, idea, really cool program, things to get involved with. And we had a, had a comment, taking out the Air Force is easy. Just turn off, <laughs> turn hot water off. <laughs> well, we'll leave that there. <laughs> uh, next article, Maastricht, uh, Maastricht University wound up earning money from its ransom payment. Uh, Maastricht University, UM, a Dutch university with more than 22,000 students said last week that it recovered the ransom paid after a ransomware attack that hit its network in December 2019. After a thorough investigation of the incident, the attack was linked by cybersecurity company Fox IT with a financially motivated hacker group called TA505 or Sector J04 known for primarily targeting retail and financial organizations since at least Q, uh, Q3 2014. So they've been doing it for a while. The hackers infiltrated the university's system via phishing emails in mid-October and deployed CLOP ransomware payloads on 267 Windows systems on December 23rd after moving laterally through the network. So uh, something to um, you know, kind of point out here. So via phishing emails, right? Uh, in your organization, in cybersecurity departments, you have to put a lot of focus and emphasis on the users, right? Phishing emails. These are a very easy way to infiltrate an organization or a network, right? If you have a domain that's a trusted domain and you send off an email, then you know that, that uh, there's no spam filter that catches it because it's a trusted domain. And then an employee clicks it if it's believable, right? And, you know, employees that are not trained are obviously going to be more susceptible to clicking on links and just going to wherever. But, you know, people, people click links, right? It just, it happens. And uh, if you send like, um, you know, a contest or winning tickets to a concert or something like that, where it's really interesting, people are likely to do it. And then obviously if you can, um, if you can either compromise that company's domain so you can get an internal email address, or if you can create a distribution list, or if you can do something like uh, typo squatting, right? Where you get a domain that is very, very similar to that company's domain, and then you send an email. You know, it might not be on that, uh, that spam list that is gonna get picked up. And then if it's like one extra letter, like instead of Google, you have, um, like goggle or G-O-O-O-G-L-E, right? Something very similar. Um, you know, you could certainly trick, uh, trick staff, if, especially if they're not trained, right? So you have to invest in training. Um, one, one week later, on December 30th, the university decided to pay the ransom to have its files decrypted after deciding that rebuilding all infective, infected systems from scratch or creating a decryptor were not viable options. UM said at the time that it paid a 30 Bitcoin ransom, roughly 
uh, I think this is in pounds, 200,000 uh, or euros, sorry, 200,000 euros at the time for the ransomware decryptor, which allowed the university to avoid delaying exams and losing all research, educational and staff data, as well as info on salary payments for approximately 4,500 uh, employees. So this is the other kind of controversy, right? Should you pay the ransomware when, uh, or the ransom when you get attacked by ransomware? We've seen this in a lot of situations where, you know, smaller companies, they just can't afford to not pay it. Or, you know, if they don't pay it, they're just going to go out of business, right? They, they can't recover. Um, we have also seen organizations like, uh, like T-Mobile, where they tried to hire a third party to pay the ransom for them and get the, get the data and then give it to T-Mobile or, you know, give it to the parent company, that company that's trying to get their data back. And, you know, of course, uh, we, we don't always see these bad actors kind of, you know, acting with the best intentions. Sometimes they'll, you know, sell off the data still. Um, and in, like in that case with T-Mobile, the idea was that they would only get the information, right? They wouldn't, um, it wouldn't get sold to somebody else and or released or whatever, right? You know, you can believe Believe things like that if you want. I mean, uh, might happen, might not. Well, no. <laughs> but um, yeah, definitely uh, backups are essential. You know, with ransomware, um, there's a lot of, we, we're starting to see a lot of kind of countermeasures and things like that that are being implemented or created that are trying to combat ransomware because, you know, once that gets going, especially in an organization, that can happen really quick. Things can just start getting encrypted. And it, again, if you don't know what ransomware is, basically it's this, um, it's a malicious, you know, it's malware, right? And um, somehow a payload, uh, basically attack gets launched. And what happens is all of your files start getting encrypted. And once they're encrypted, they usually add like an extension to the, the file name of every file that it encrypts. And you can't see any of that information or access those files unless you get the decryptor key or decryptor software or whatever that that particular ransomware uses. And you know, typically it, it requires a ransom. That's why it's called ransomware. So you have to pay a certain amount to get it back. And you know, we've even seen uh, these ransomware attacks go after both sides. So go after like a vendor or uh, an all-access decryptor key where they're going to charge, obviously, a ton more, or uh, going after the individual where, you know, they're still going to charge something, but it's not as advantageous, right? Just like, it's just like in sales, right? You, you will get more money going after a business, selling to a business, than you will selling to an individual, right? Typically, depending on the product, right? Um, but that's kind of the idea, right? So, um, okay, cool. So next article, pen, uh, pen, pen tester says he broke in a data center via hidden route running behind toilets. So this is actually a really interesting article and definitely recommend you go and check it out. Uh, but Tierney, who works as a consultant for a security services outfit, Pentest Partners, revealed in a Twitter thread how one of his more memorable exploits involved demonstrating it is possible to gain physical access to the supposedly secure area of a data center via its toilets. Of course, it makes total sense, right? Uh, posting a diagram to illustrate, 
Tierney showed that an unnamed facility had a separate bathroom area for the general office space and the secure area where the IT infrastructure is housed. However, the two toilets, uh, two toilet facilities were adjoined and Tierney realized that there was actually a shared access space for servicing the toilets that ran behind both sets of cubicles. So this shared, uh, shared access space, right? Uh, it turned out the access space could be reached through a concealed door in an accessible cubicle, a large, larger cubicle designed for wheelchair access on either side of the secure insecure divide. So that's exactly what Tierney did, entering the toilets on the general office space side and accessing the um, uh, the corridor. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say the full corridor. Check out the article; it's pretty interesting. But uh, via the accessible cubicle existing on the supposedly secure so, uh, side, the same way. So this comes down, you know, really to physical security, right? How is your building space? How is it constructed? In cybersecurity and in information security, you know, building aspects and how things are configured does matter, right? Things like data centers. We want them to be in the center of your organization, or the center of your building. We don't want that to be on the outside so somebody could go and break a window or something and get right in, um, you know, and floods and things like that, right? So if you're on, in a flood zone, we don't want it to be on the first floor because we don't want it to get flooded. All these things matter, right? And uh, even uh, if you're looking outside of an organization and you see like plants or how barriers are installed and all this stuff, right? Because it does matter. And, you know, this is an example of how that was neglected. You had this shared access space that all somebody had to do was get access to this one little door, this one shared access space area, and, you know, they can get in. And that's a real issue. You know, even if you have all these controls like uh, proximity scanners, badge readers, you know, all this kind of stuff, it doesn't matter. If, you know, if there's a will, there's a way, right? And there's a lot of different tactics to gaining physical access and testing physical access. So we're not, I'm not going to dive into that stuff, but there is a lot of ways that you can do it that are not sophisticated, right? And if you make it easy like this, well, then, uh, you know, that's kind of on you. So uh, you definitely need to consider how things are constructed and, you know, test them, right? Uh, this was, you know, clearly a paid test, a physical penetration test. And, you know, that's a great way to actually test your measures. And, you know, with testing like this, there's multiple tests that you can do where, you know, the attacker doesn't know anything. They know maybe a little bit or they know a lot, right? And then you can kind of get varying results based on all that information. But, um, you know, physical pen test, uh, virtual pen test, cyber pen test, you know, all this kind of stuff. So definitely test, 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 because you're not going to see every issue. And uh, if you bring somebody in from the outside, you know, they can bring fresh eyes, right? And help you find some issues. So. But um, yeah, the, you can get in via the toilets. That's pretty awesome, right? So uh, next article, L3 Harris reportedly ends talks to uh, acquire controversial Israeli spyware maker NSO Group. L3 Harris was first reported to be in talks with the NSO Group on June 14th, although it was uh, what it, it was, ugh, although what it attempted to acquire was unclear. One report suggested that L3 Harris was interested in acquiring only NSO surveillance technology, while other reports 
suggested that the deal was to acquire all of the NSO group. NSO group with this Pegasus software, which is a uh, spyware software and very controversial software, right? So if you ever hear about spyware software, chances are Pegasus has probably uh, come up. But Pegasus is a form of software that uses zero day or unpatch exploits to infect mobile devices. It was allegedly used to hack about 1,400 WhatsApp users using US servers, according to a lawsuit filed in 2019. And then, of course, you know, other, other incidents, uh, examples, uh, going targeting journalists and you know, high prominent figures and all kinds of stuff, right? Uh, pushback against the proposed deal ultimately scuttled the talks. According to the New York Times, White House officials were reportedly outraged to learn about the negotiations and that any attempt by an American defense contractor to purchase a blacklisted company would be met with uh, serious resistance. So L3 Harris, if you're not familiar with them, they are a government defense contractor here in the U.S. And uh, I'm sure they're, you know, they have international presence, right? Um, but, uh, you know, they, they rely heavily on U.S. government contracts. That is, you know, a bulk of their, their revenue stream. And like any company that is in, you know, a specific country, but especially the U.S., because, you know, I'm in the U.S., right? Uh, there are uh, countries that you, you know, that you can't deal with that are blacklisted, right? That are on sanctions or whatever. And that's, you know, any country has, uh, some type of sanctions against certain countries and, you know, deals and things like that, that are not allowed, right? That's, you know, that's just a thing that happens, but, you know, specifically in this situation, L3 Harris trying to negotiate or, you know, acquire this company that's on this blacklisted, uh, that is on this blacklist of companies, you know, there's going to be some resistance. And it even says it, you know, in that quote, but you have to go through the proper channels. You have to get things like this approved. And I don't really understand why they kind of were going straight at it and not dealing with it. I mean, maybe behind back channels and this was just kind of like the public statement. I'm not really sure. It seems pretty suspicious, but um, the Times claims that days later, L3 Harris, which is heavily reliant on government contracts, again, like I said, told the Biden administration that it had scuttled its plans to purchase NSO. However, it is noted that there have been several attempts to uh, resuscitate. <laughs> that's a weird, that's a weird word, uh, just how it's formatted, but the negotiations sense. So. Yeah, I mean, you have to go through the appropriate processes and procedures, especially when it's um, something that's so controversial. But, you know, again, I just, I don't understand why they would just be going for this without some kind of consensus or at least talking about it prior to going for it, right? It's almost kind of like they decided they were going to go for it, get all this spyware, and then they kind of, you know, met resistance, right? But, you know, What's in the news is not always the full story, right? So that's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Pegasus news just keeps coming. I mean, they, they've been in the news for obviously targeting and spyware and all this stuff. And then, you know, it started coming up about this. Um, actually, try to think of when this article was first, uh, when we first started talking about this, I think it was like a month or two ago, I want to say, uh, well, it says June 14th. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, I guess about a month ago. Right. So 
month and two days or whatever. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so this, I, f I think that this is probably not over, right? Like it, I feel like this is going to come up more, right? So we'll, we'll see how this kind of evolves. Maybe, you know, it won't be public and maybe they will just acquire them, right? We don't know. So we'll see. Uh, next article, hackers say that they can unlock and start Honda cars remotely. A security researcher who goes by the name of Kevin2600 published a technical report and videos claiming that uh, anyone armed with a simple hardware hack device to steal code can unlock Honda vehicles. And uh, Kevin2600 works for uh, the cybersecurity firm Star V Lab, dubbed the attack Rolling Pawn. So keep that in mind if you ever hear about Rolling Pawn, if you go to an interview, something like that. Rolling Pawn, that's about this, these Honda vehicles, right? I feel like that's going to catch on. So that's what I'm saying. Keep, keep that in mind, right? Uh, this weakness allows anyone to permanently open the car door or even start the car engine from a long distance. Kevin2600 wrote in his report, the rolling pawn bug is a serious vulnerability we found in a vulnerable version of the rolling codes mechanism, which is implemented in a huge amount of Honda vehicles. In a phone call, Kevin2600 explained that the attack relies on the weakness that allows somebody using a software-defined radio, such as a hack RF, to capture the code that the car owner uses to open the car and then replay it so that the hacker can open the car as well. In some cases, he said, the attack can be performed from 30 meters, approximately 98 feet away. So that's, you know, that's not super close, right? Uh, and then also see this article for a uh, proof of concept video on this actually happening. But, you know, this is, um, this is something that is not necessarily new as far as vulnerabilities that we've seen around car vehicles and RF signals and things like that, right? Typically what happens with a lot of this stuff is it generates some kind of code or it uses some kind of code, the, the sensor or trigger does, right? So the button, and then that sends it to the, the unit, right? So if that's a garage door opener or it's in the car, whatever, right? So we've, we've seen this kind of thing before, even though not necessarily in this specific situation, but, you know, specifically with cars, we've seen a lot of cars have similar ish kind of vulnerabilities where you can capture the signal and replay it and unlock car doors or uh, even start cars. Right. And uh, obviously that's an, that's an issue. Um, just kind of depending on, you know, what exactly you can do, what scenario you can do it in. If you're driving a car and you drive next to somebody and you can capture the signal, can you cut the engine, right? Um, can you hit the accelerator? Can you hit the brake? Can you whatever, right? Can you do some of the stuff? Can you turn the volume to max? You know, all that kind of stuff could cause some serious safety issues. And um, I've said it before, you know, in, uh, in this kind of space where you're uh, hacking cars, hacking vehicles, learning about IoT devices, you know, that's definitely an emerging area. And there's going to be a lot of money in that because I think especially with cars, you know, that's going to be an ongoing issue. Sometimes these car manufacturers, they don't seem to be uh, extremely um, focused on, on correcting some of these issues. 
they kind of just let it go. And probably because it's kind of cost intensive, depending um, with what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to uh, trying to sell a car at an affordable price, especially like with a Honda. And they're not trying to necessarily stack on all these security measures, right? It's a balancing act. And um, yeah, but th- I mean, it's, it's a cool thing, right? Like just from a, a cool standpoint, being able to start a car from just pressing a button uh, that is not the manufacturer provided uh, starter, that's pretty cool, right? Um, so I would definitely, if you're interested in emerging areas, you know, this, uh, the IOT vehicles, uh, and also, um, you know, autonomous vehicles, uh, obviously cryptocurrency, like those are all the kind of emerging kind of areas. And then, uh, quantum computing as well. You know, that's another area that we're seeing that is emerging as well. And that's kind of a, it's kind of a tangent, right? Like off this vehicle, uh, off this article, but it's, you know, emerging areas, right? If you're looking at places that you can really uh, get in at the ground floor and the cutting edge area, you know, those are them. So um, let's see here. And then we also had another article that says Honda redesigning latest vehicles to address key fob vulnerabilities. So, you know, that's obviously an interesting uh, shift, but Honda said it's addressing a spat of recently discovered vulnerabilities in its newly designed models after researchers found uh, bugs affecting the key fob system and its vehicles dating back to 2012. So I will say that even though, you know, a manufacturer like this, a car manufacturer is saying that, you know, we, we've seen in other examples, situations, that that is not always uh, accurate, right? You know, people say stuff and then they don't do stuff, right? It just kind of gets put to the back burner until people forget and then they forget about it, right? So keep that in mind, but you know, at least they're responding. Earlier this year, Honda was forced to address CVE 2022-27254, a replay vulnerability affecting the remote keyless system and Honda Civics ranging from uh, those made in 2016 to 2020. And that bug allowed researchers to eavesdrop on the unencrypted radio frequency signal and recreate it, giving them the ability to open and start vehicles. So, you know, basically what we said. In an effort to deal with this issue, Honda and car manufacturers developed a rolling code key system, uh, system and keyless entry systems that mitigates the vulnerability by using a pseudo random number generator to create several different codes between the key fob and the car. Yeah, so again, a lot of the issues that spur from this is because they reuse uh, these codes or these numbers or they, uh, they are easy to predict, right? Those two issues are huge. And that doesn't just apply to, you know, this. Typically in a lot of situations when we see this, it's with uh, when like cookies or session identifiers are, are generated. So if you go to a website, you log into the website and then you get the session cookie or this random, you know, generated number the easier that it is to predict that number, the easier it will be to uh, exploit that system. So, you know, one of the examples, right? Like if you log into a system and this is kind of getting off this article, but it's, it's similar. But so if you log into a system and you're, you're given the identifier of 001, right? You know, one of the issues is that a lot of times the next person to log in is given 002. And you can absolutely fuzz these and basically provide these. You need a tool that would allow you to do this. So something like Burp Suite or Zap or some kind of 
um, you know, dynamic testing application, but you can send these parameters behind the scenes because they're usually sent as um, post parameters basically behind the scenes, right? So you can't see it unless you have one of these tools. You don't see it in like the address bar. But, um, you know, the idea is if it's like 001, 002, 003, 004, like, and just keeps going, well, then I, as an attacker, I can just go in there. I can supply that number, that 00, you know, two or whatever, and I can impersonate that other user. So that's kind of the idea. So you cannot reuse codes. That's what I'm getting at, right? You have to use different codes, make them very hard to guess, and that way people can't use them or, um, I mean, in this case, it's replaying them, but you, you can't uh, easily break the system, right? So, yeah, and OWASP, uh, we have a comment in the, uh, the chat here. Uh, check out OWASP, the OWASP testing guide and uh, OWASP in general, but they talk a lot about sessions and these identifiers and things like that because it's, it's a common vulnerability, right? Um, again, it's not um, necessarily directly related to this vulnerability incident, but it, it, it kind of is, right? Because there's still that session identifier or that easily guessable um, number. But um, that, that's a huge one to know about if you're in cybersecurity or if you're looking to get into cybersecurity because um, you know, it, it is a common vulnerability, right? So uh, thanks, Rari, for that. Uh, that's who left the, uh, the comment, so that's awesome. I love when you guys, uh, you know, interact in the chat and, and, you know, really, really uh, enjoy the, the articles and everything. So that's awesome. Uh, let's see here. So uh, next interesting article, cyber insurers looking for new risk assessment models. So cyber insurance companies are looking for new ways to assess risk as they grow increasingly wary of rising claims, said a report from a cybersecurity company. Uh, Pan- Pansier released this week. The 2022 Cyber Insurance Market Trends Report found that a lack of confidence in underwriting processes. Uh, Only 44% of insurers said that they were very confident in evaluating cyber risk, with 46.5% warning that they were somewhat confident, and almost 1 in 10 admitting that they were not not that confident in their underwriting capabilities for uh, cyber insurance. So uh, it also says cloud security topped a list of factors when assessing a client's security posture at 40%. According to the report, security awareness and uh, application security came next. Identity access management and endpoint detection and response. Typically vital factors in avoiding phishing attacks and malware infection came last with just one in four cyber insurance companies considering these important as important factors. So, you know, cybersecurity is hard. Uh, Insurance companies specifically, and so, you know, cyber security insurance, cyber insurers, it's no different. They make their money because you don't make claims, right? So they are getting more money uh, in relation to how much they have to pay out. That's basically how insurance works, right? Um, So if you never make a claim, they're just collecting your premiums and they're making money, right? That, that's just how it works, right? Um, so if they cannot effectively assess risk in your organization, you know, then the chance, and I, I would say if they can't effectively assess risk, and then also too, if they don't have the right 
stipulations in the contract or the requirements, right? Those are the things that are ultimately going to matter because if I, as an insurer or somebody that works in as, as an, ins uh, an insurance company or a, an assessor, right? If I can't walk in and say, well, you don't have this policy in place. So, and I'm going to get, you know, very specific, right? This is not necessarily how it works in real life, but if you don't have this policy in place, then you're at a 10% premium uh, chance that you're going to get hacked, you know, whatever. I mean, it's, it's not specific. It's not exact. I'm just giving a, you know, an example, right? Um, so if I can't do that, right. And then I don't have the things to properly um, disqualify you because, you know, you don't have this policy, but you don't also have these or whatever, uh, you know, then I'm going to go out of business pretty quick because companies get hacked all the time, right? And if I am just paying out because I can't, you know, properly assess risk, that's an issue. Um, we see that in a lot of different organizations in general, that there's problems assessing risk and translating that to dollar figures or how that affects the bottom line, how that affects the company as a whole, reputation, all this stuff, right? Uh, but, you know, one of the things that we've seen a lot in this industry is that um, companies are starting to default to insurance, right? They are going to that avoidance risk decision, which means that they uh, are rather transference where they are transferring the risk to other entities. So they're transferring it to like an insurance company and, you know, good for them if they can get paid out, right? If they, uh, if they are able to abide by whatever the terms are and that's even not enough and they're still getting hacked and they're able to reap those, uh, that payout, then I guess good for them. Obviously there's other issues with getting, uh, you know, with getting hacked and stuff, whatever. But, um, you know, uh, the cyber insurers, it's definitely an emerging area as far as like businesses and things like that, that we're seeing pop up. But, um, you know, I, I, it's just, it shows that they're struggling with it. Right. Because at first it was a cool idea and, you know, not a lot of companies were coming on and, you know, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't something that was happening a lot. Maybe they didn't have to pay a lot, but now we see a ton of companies going to that. So, uh, they got to get their act together or they're all going to start going out of business. It's just how it is, you know, start being more restrictive, start learning more about how to assess risk, uh, the things that are required, right. To be cybersecurity compliant or secure. And, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, we had a, a comment. It's very difficult to assess risk. It's, uh, or damages. It's very difficult to translate that to dollar figures too. And that's really what they're trying to do. They're trying to assess, you know, if I give this premium, ultimately, what do I think a specific incident of this magnitude is going to cost, right? And what can I, um, what can I offer as far as an insurance product to, you know, combat that? And then, you know, what do the premiums look like? And, you know, all this stuff matters. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's a very difficult game, I think. Um, especially in cybersecurity, it's just very difficult, right? If you're insuring uh, cars, you know, as an example, or drivers, there's just so much data out there and it's very easy now for them to do it, right? Like it's very easy for them to assess, okay, you got 
uh, 10 tickets last year for speeding or something, whatever, right? Um, you probably, probably get arrested at that point. But, uh, you know, it's very easy to link those things and come up with a dollar figure. Cybersecurity, it's not that easy. I mean, we're struggling just to justify budgets and things like that, right? So it's, um, you know, just uh, that whole idea of assessing risk in general within organizations, within insurance organizations, it's it's going to be um, a topic of concern and topic of discussion well into the future, right? It just is. Uh, next article, ex-CIA engineer convicted in biggest theft ever of agency secrets. So a former CIA, Central Intelligence Agency software engineer, was convicted by a federal jury on Wednesday of causing the largest theft of classified information in the agency's history. Former CIA employee uh, Joshua Schult, uh, Schult, Schulte was arrested after the 2017 disclosure by WikiLeaks of a trove of confidential documents dealing, uh, detailing the agency's secret methods for penetrating the company's networks of foreign governments and terrorists. The verdict came two years after a previous jury failed to agree on eight of the 10 charges he faced then. The investigation that led to Mr. Schulte's conviction began in March 2017 after WikiLeaks, an anti-secrecy organization, publicly shared thousands of pages of internal CIA materials describing sophisticated software tools and techniques used by the agency to break into smartphones, computers, and even internet-connected televisions. Document dump a coup, uh, a coup of, for the group, but a serious blow to the CIA included instructions for compromising various commonly used computer tools and then using them to spy uh, online service called Skype, uh, calling service Skype, Wi-Fi networks, PDF documents, and even commercial antivirus programs of the kind used by millions of people to protect their computer. Uh, the breach was known as the Vault 7 leak. So if you've ever heard of Vault, Se Vault 7 leak, you know that's what it is. Uh, this is just interesting in general because you know, over the last, I would say, 10 years or so, uh, we've seen a ton of leaks related to um, especially like cyber programs and things like that and software and tools and, you know, even going to like Pegasus, that spying software we talked about earlier. You know, all of this stuff is kind of in that cyber realm, right? And we didn't see that stuff really getting leaked before that. I would say you know, obviously things like Snowden, uh, the Snowden leaks and stuff like that, those were really the major leaks that we saw. Uh, and that's kind of what, um, where it really started to topple and we started to see more and more. But, you know, this, this, is, uh, this was a major leak in 2017. And especially with the sensitivity of the information that this person leaked, I mean, they're going to be in trouble, right? Like you, you are just in trouble by doing that. And uh, especially, you know, dealing with government and things like that, you know, they're going to figure it out. You know, it might not be today, might be not be tomorrow, might not be next week, right? But at some point, you're going to get busted. And that is because you're not smarter than, uh, than you know, a government, a, uh, a state, you know, uh, entity, right? Uh, we talk about state-sponsored threat actors. And, you know, countries like Russia and China and, you know, all the countries, the U.S. And 
you just don't have more capability or more knowledge than they do, right? Like they will be able to find out who you are and what you're doing. And if you're stealing or revealing information like this, you know, that's an issue. Um, specifically WikiLeaks, you know, if you're not familiar with what they are, they more or less um, are focused on kind of like the freedom of information, like really just being transparent and having a lot of information out there, I guess is kind of a way that you could phrase it. Um, but basically what happens is people will dump documents to them that are classified and things like that, and they'll put them out there, right? They just have no, um, uh, no filter, right? As a, as a common term, they will, they will put a bunch of information out there. And, um, you know, this person, you know, you work for the CIA and you did it and obviously, yeah, you got busted. So, yeah. So let's see what else we got. Let's see here. Let's just make sure. Okay. Yep. So that is, um, that's going to be the last article for today. We've been doing this for a little bit, but um, check out the, uh, the description. If you're on YouTube, there is a, um, a link to the show notes and that's where I have our, all the articles posted. I have some other articles in there too. So if, you know, if, if you want to look more, at some other stuff that we didn't necessarily get to cover in here, then I definitely would recommend checking that out. I want to thank you for joining me on your Saturday, uh, Saturday morning for me, uh, depending on where you're at, you know, Saturday evening, Saturday night. If you're watching another day, you know, thanks for joining us as well on the replay. But uh, on YouTube, make sure to leave a like, comment, and subscribe to this. Hit the bell icon. That way you get notified for future content as it's released. So not just these, uh, not just these videos, you'll get other videos that I'm releasing too. have a lot of great content coming. If you're on YouTube listening to, or, uh, YouTube, if you're on uh, podcasting platforms, uh, listening to us, make sure to, uh, leave a, uh, leave a review as well and subscribe. And that way you get the new, the new episodes as they come out as well. Um, that is going to be it. I want to thank you for joining me again. This is your threat Intel briefing for July 10th, 2022 through July 16th, 2022. And with that, uh, we're going to go ahead and call it a day. Have a great rest of your weekend.